Welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast, where we share the latest tips, tactics, and strategies for scaling your practice from the top experts in the world of growing law firms. Are you ready to take your practice to the next level? Let's get started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Jan Roos, and I am super excited to have our guest today. We have Charlene Giselle, who is a high-performance coach and former litigator, and I'm super, super excited after our pre-chat to talk a little bit about the stuff that she focuses on. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Charlene. I am so excited to be here with you, Jan. (laughs) Okay, so I wanted to dig into your background a little bit. Really, really interesting way of getting to where you're at with the coaching stuff. But um, tell us a little bit more about what led you to get there. Mm, to get into coaching or to get into law? Either or, honestly. Let me start with Either or. Well, I feel like I, I might have to start in a chronological order, though. Yeah. It might sound like a bit of an odd way to spend your childhood, but I spent my childhood following my father around to his office and playing with all the books that I could find and paperwork and just looking at him, putting his suits on and his ties. And I was just so admirative of his working ethos and the way that he handled his client and all the business attires. And I remember just thinking, I want to be like my father when I grow up. I want to be a businesswoman. I want to travel the world and serve clients. And um, I love books. I love reading. So law was very quickly established as my dream. I know that little girls dream about becoming princesses and I am afraid I was a bit of a boring little girl. I wanted to become a lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> so that that was my my dream. And so I did that. I read law at Cambridge University, joined my dream law firm, became a litigator. I was really obsessed with doing dispute resolution and litigation. I love the idea of advocating and conflict resolution and finding creative solutions. And I have to say, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I loved my law firm. I loved my colleagues. But as I kept on pushing harder and harder beyond the boundaries of my body, my mind, I received a call a Monday morning and found that my father, who was my inspiration to do what I do, had a burnout-driven heart attack. So that was a huge wake-up call for me. I was busy with work when he had the heart attack, as of course you would be too busy, right? Really tied into uh, litigation and I couldn't fly. By the time I flew home, he had a stroke. That happened before my eyes and stroke are quite traumatizing to watch, particularly if it's someone that you love so dearly, having one of them in front of you. And in this moment of life or death, I sort of, made a pledge. I decided that I was going to become the coach that I wish I had. I was going to become the coach that I wish my had my father had before the heart attack. And I was going to transform the life of as many lawyers as I could in a lifetime. That was my mission statement from that day onward. Yeah. Well, so talk about a call to action. That's, you know, very, very like you don't see those circumstances happening often. But um yeah, I mean I was gonna say too, just like little uh, little casual nugget that you dropped there too before the you know, high performance litigation career, going to law at Cambridge, I know that's extremely prestigious. So you seem like you were firing in all cylinders pretty much that entire time, right? Yeah, I love how you say that, firing out full cylinders. I think uh that's a that's a nice way of describing the way I was operating. 
And because I, you know, Cambridge is not hard enough, I decided it was a really good idea to do a double degree. So while I was at Cambridge University, I studied a double master degree in French law so that I could be not only an English litigator, but also a French solicitor. So I ended up being dual qualified with double master degree in law. Thought it was a good idea at the time. I was probably uh, navigating a, a baby burnout back in my student years. But of course, I ignored all the signs and symptoms and carried on working more and harder. <laughs> yeah. Well, it seems like, and you know, it's, it's definitely unfortunate that you didn't have that level of a burnout episode with your father, of course, personally. But like, you know, it's something that I think a lot of people listening to this podcast have flirted with. Maybe they've had a burnout episode themselves. But now that this is something that you're helping people with, how can people identify whether this is a path that they're on right now? I think there's, you know, definitely certain things that people have come to accept within the legal profession. But how do we separate good stress from bad stress? And what are some of the early warning signs? And I think you were spot on, Yannick, by asking your question was super smart. Like, how do you distinguish good stress and bad stress? Because I'm actually an advocate of understanding that stress is good. I'm pro-stress. As a performance coach, I love knowing that my clients are being driven because a high dose of stress really drives motivation, courage, and even just looking at evolutionary science as a human species, we've been designed because we get stronger by stress, right? The, the stressful environment, stressful condition, they make us more resilient. But, and that's the important thing, stress is only healthy if and when it is combined with recovery. Mm. So you need to have stress and you need to have recovery in adequate measures to compensate and to do the repairing and to do the recovery and to make sure that you can handle the stress load in a way that is adequate and also in a way that makes you stronger, not makes you weaker. So to go back to your initial question, how do you know if you're navigating extra stress, bad stress, or if you're navigating good stress, you stress, you would ask yourself the question, number one, is my performance overall deteriorating? Was my performance a 10? last year and is my performance an eight? That's not the way performance should go. Like ideally, it should improve a little bit every, every month, every quarter, and hopefully every year. Is my confidence level compounding into higher and higher level as I get promoted, as I, get, as I grow into my firm? Are my relationships inside and outside of work improving or deteriorating? If you're Marriage is breaking apart. If your associates think that you're a nightmare to work with, they may not say it to your face, but you know when you don't get positive feedback loop from your associates, you get the attitude. Those are telltale signs. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you very honestly, Jan, one of my telltale signs, which of course I ignored, was the fact that my first marriage completely broke apart, right? Mm -hmm. I couldn't keep my marriage together because... Honestly, I wasn't giving it the time and intention that it was required. Every relationship is an investment, personal and professional. And I definitely did not make that investment. So if you're noticing that, that's a sign. Are you noticing that your passion is declining? So what do I mean by passion? Your passion for the law, of course, but also your passion elsewhere. Quick example, on a Saturday morning, do you wake up feeling energized because you have a day to yourself where you may not have to bill as much, you might work a little bit, but maybe not as much, or do you wake up drained and all you fantasize doing is crashing on your sofa, getting your delivery done and seeing nobody? These are telltale signs that perhaps your passion cup is a bit depleted. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's also a huge challenge too, because it's like we're thinking about people that don't really have the energy to like recuperate. Like that's kind of a tough situation. Like everyone knows like the classic, like, oh, okay, cool. So it sounds like, you know, I'm a lawyer and working so hard, you know, I can really cut loose and have a couple of drinks right now. But I'm guessing that's probably not, you know, uh, doing that kind of stuff, you know, um, rotting on the couch and ordering takeout all weekend and watching wow. Netflix, probably not the best, right? It's an important topic, right? Because let's face it, that's usually how folks that I work with relax. You know, when I ask, what's your relaxation strategy? Most people in one-to-one, not publicly, they'll tell me Pinot Noir Chardonnay. You know, that's their number one (laughs) relaxation strategy. And look, I'm French. I live in vineyards, around vineyards area. I love my wine juice like the next person. But what I've learned over the years of doing peak performance coaching and peak performance for myself is that I make it a paramount priority not to use alcohol as a relaxation tool. I love having a very special bottle open to entertain my guests and to appreciate it and talk about the wonder of that year and have a conversation about the terroir and all the beautiful things that wine has to offer. But I'm not going to rely on wine as a tool to help me sleep or as a chill pill. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which is what a lot of us do do after work and really understandably so. But one message that perhaps I would love to to share and more of an invitation to reflect is what are the habits that you're using after work when you come home after a long day to, to relax? Are they things that actually nourish you, nourish your your brain, nourish your body? Or are they things that actually may make your performance at work or the following month or the following year a little bit harder and harder? Because you see, if you come home and I'll share some strategies, you know, before back in the days when I burnt out, I would come home and it might be 2 a.m. and 3 a.m. You know, I I used to work a lot. (laughs) And you know what I used to do? First thing, even if it was 3 a.m., I would switch on my laptop, even though I worked on a computer all day long, and I would watch a show. So back day wasn't smart TV. I'm a bit of a dinosaur. So uh, talking about pre-smart TV, I would put a DVD on. I would watch one of my favorite series. Now, think about that as a relaxation strategy. Now it's 4 a.m. or 4.30. I'm going to grab very little sleep. And I thought it was helpful to help me unwind. But it's actually not helpful because I've spent 14 hours on the screen and now I'm spending another 90 minutes on the screen and my eyes are getting all the blue light. What I do differently now is I still enjoy movies, but I use them as very special treats for a weekend or mm. something that I share with my loved one on a strategic Saturday night, for example, where it's planned and there is an attention. And in the evenings after a long day, I'm going to read a book. I'm going to make sure that I do something like stretching or taking a long walk, which will actually help me relax my body and my mind in a way that is healthier. That's super interesting. And it's kind of when I've spoken to people who have kind of a coaching role, I feel like a lot of the stuff that's kind of present and at least what I've been exposed to in the industry is very, very, you know, mental, emotional, that kind of stuff too. But you're bringing this element of physical performance into the equation, which is something that's pretty, I mean, I haven't spoken to a lot of people out for sure. So let's talk about that a little bit more. And I want to kind of um, branch into some definitions as well, too, because high performance coaching seems like something that's different, right? So can we talk a little bit more about what, uh, how you define that and like what the distinction is between a high performance coach and other types of coaches that people might want to consider working with? Yeah, that's a terrific question. So a high performance coach is a coach that looks at 
the performance metric of the individual they're working with within their organization or outside of their organization. So a lot of my clients either are self-sponsored or sponsored by the organization that they work in. And we look at the performance measures. So be it billable hours, be it KPIs, what is this individual looking to achieve that year, that quarter? And then we reverse engineer. So I look through everything with the measure of success, which is the person's performance, but also the person's performance within their life. So I'm going to define my role by explaining what it is not. It is not business coaching. Why? Because a business coach will really focus on that element of the performance and really focus on that and end the journey there really do a fantastic job at business, but may not investigate to that person around their sleeping schedule, around their nutrition habits, around their fitness routine. Whereas I will go in and look at the performance metrics, measures and goals and key objectives and investigate the behind the scenes. So I understand what you want to achieve at work, but now I want to know how you live at home. I want to know what you eat for breakfast. I want to know what you tell yourself before you log in and send your first email. I'm going to be your friendly detective and investigate every single habit, behavior, and mindset that you have day to day so that I can sequence it and understand your patterns. What I'm not is a health and well-being coach purely because there a health and well-being coach will look at your nutrition, your sleep and your fitness, but they may not look at your business key objectives or your performance metrics. So they will help you have a fitness plan. They will help you have a nutrition plan, a sleeping schedule, but they will not look at your performance at work. So I am the person that orchestrates and coordinates where well-being and business objectives meet and make sure that I can work with other consultants that my client might have to align all the objectives in a way that is coherent. Great. That's really interesting. Like when you're when you're talking about this, you're kind of reminding me of uh, the same kind of coach that somebody would have if they were like an athlete or something. Like right? Exactly that. That is your spot on. That is actually where high performance com- coaching comes from. The the birthing place of performance coaching is sports science. It really is all a derivative of sports psychology because it's understanding that a person has key goals and objectives to meet, but the person is a person. The person is a person. You know, if uh, if an athlete is being coached by a coach that doesn't factor in the person, this athlete will probably not become a champion. But if the coach is making sure that they understand their athlete in a 360 degree and knows what they like, what they eat, what they think, what they dislike, what they don't eat and how they don't sleep, then you're going to turn an athlete into a champion. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's kind of funny too, because I feel like in some levels, there's like, you don't really want to have, I think people have like personal lines that they wouldn't want to cross with an employee or a coworker or something like that. But like, you know, when it comes to the highest levels of, of performing, it's like, you know, that's something you have to take in consideration, right? Absolutely. And I love that you brought that up because honestly, if clients have boundaries, they're going to find it really hard working with me because I'm going to ask them how they sleep. I'm going to ask them if they snore. I'm going to ask them if they picked a fight with their wife or their partner. I'm going to ask them about their relationship with their children. And the reason is not because I'm being nosy, but because it's highly relevant. We are human. Who doesn't have their mind wander about their loved ones, children, spouses when they're at work? Of course we do. And we have high emotion running our lives on a day-to-day basis. And if I don't know 
what my client's emotional landscape is, I can't do the best work that I do. And I like to serve my clients at the highest level. So I have to know, like I say, you have to tell the truth to your lawyer, your tax man and your coach. Yeah. <laughs> so it's super interesting. Like I've, you know, I've had a situation where, um, you know, I've noticed this for like within, you know, my own business for coaching salespeople as well too. And there's, uh, I forget who ended up telling me this was a mentor of mine. He was just like, you know, once you get to the point of basic competence for a salesperson, the variance that they're going to have in their performance is almost always due to their personal lives. I've had situations where people have gone to really bad situations. You know, it tends to be a lot of younger guys that we're working with in the sales team. So a lot of the times this will be, you know, a relationship problems. And sometimes I feel like you're crossing, uh, like, you know, it doesn't feel like crossing a line, but like you kind of have to be uh, a therapist as much as a manager sometimes, like even outside of like the context for these things. But, you know, the breakthroughs that people can have when they have that. And it's like, you know, not only you're helping that for your business, a lot of the times it's, you know, you're helping somebody out for life, which is like really an important thing to keep in mind. But um, I wanted to ask, because this is like such a fascinating concept to me, without going into detail that would expose somebody, can you share with us any examples of like situations that you've worked on some of your favorite deployments and what you're able to kind of get in terms of helping those like key performance things? Yes, of course. So perhaps to illustrate some of the importance of having a resilient mindset and a resilient body, I'm going to talk to you about one of my recent success story. So one of the partner that I worked with, he was, well, I'm smiling when I think about him because he just recently got a very prestigious award. So I actually just read an article um, in the legal news that gave me the biggest smile. Of course, I can't reveal his identity, but knowing that he's gone through such a journey just gives me such joy. And when we started to work together, that was over a year ago, he was really struggling. Not at a level that you would have noticed within the law firm, but at a level that was deeply personal. And actually, he was very skeptical about getting coached. And he confessed that the reason he was calling me was because his wife had requested that he does. I thought to myself, hmm, that's an interesting beginning of a professional relationship. He doesn't really want to be there, but his wife has asked him almost an ultimatum. You must get coaching. You must sort things out. And of course, he had huge love and respect for his wife and he really wanted to do something positive. And and the reason she was pressing on the fact that he was getting coached was because his mood and behavior were not particularly pleasant at home. The reason that has an impact on business is because when I investigated the way he started his day, he started in a very negative way. But I wasn't really getting through to him when I was talking about the importance of starting the day with optimism. He said, well, but I'm an extraordinary lawyer. What I do is what I do. I'm very technical and I do the things that I do. And and he was an extraordinary lawyer. But (laughs) I used this analogy of sports to get through to him because he really loved sports. So I said, "Okay, so pick a sport that you really, really love and We talked about the New Zealand team doing their hacker. And I said, okay, fine. We're going to talk about rugby. Do you think a player, before they go into the field and perform their hacker, think to themselves, this is going to be a really hard game. We're probably going to lose, but we've got the skills and we're good. We're really good. We're technically really, really good. So, okay, we're going to win because we're really, really good. No, 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 no. They get pumped up. They Go in before they do the hacker thinking we're a winner. No one else is going to win. We've got this. I've got the day. This challenge, I've got it. This game, I've got it. The opponents, I'm going to win. What if 
you perform your morning before you log in and start billing with a hacker. I'm not asking you to do a hacker, but a mental hacker <laughs> where you go in and you write down the list of all your score, core skills, all your talent, all your superpowers, those things that you do for your team and for your law firm that only you do. And you write them down and you think about all the impact that you've had this year on your clients and you think about your wins and you think about all the skills that you have acquired over the years to keep on winning. You have a bit of a win list so that you start every morning with a winning mindset. At first, he was not completely on board, but then I asked him to do that as a coaching homework every single morning while he was drinking his coffee, just for three minutes. The results were transformational. He completely shifted his mindset from very negative to start of the day, which had a knock-on impact on his marriage, his whole personal life, and also his approach with associate to having a much more optimistic and resilient mindset. Yeah, that's awesome. And then as far as like the performance metric, if it's not too much to share, like what was the major thing that he was looking to move and how did the mindset end up affecting that end uh -huh. goal? First, not getting a divorce, I think was pretty yeah, good. Yeah, that's probably a good one. I'm being honest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then on a more, more professional nature of a metrics, the ability to not see associates go. So this specific partner was really suffering from having a high rate of turnover in his team. Let's say that he's a genius, but he can be a tough person to work with, to put it mildly. Even he described himself as a tough partner to be around at times in the law firm. And he had created an environment that was becoming a little difficult to navigate for that department. And a lot of associates were struggling to work with him, although admired him greatly. There was no question of how amazing of a lawyer he was. There were questions about his leadership style. Through working together, he transformed that leadership style. He was more empathetic. He also was more supportive. He recognized more of the team effort. So the attitude that he had was overall more positive was fueled his ability to notice progress, to pick up on positive feedback and to be a bit more nurturing and encouraging of the team. So I call this leading with admiration rather than leading from fear. So if as a leader, you can really inspire rather than scare, I think it's quite an important shift to make. Yeah, that's fascinating. And like, I was going to say, you know, in terms of getting down to a financial outcome from that too. The cost of churn on employees is so high, especially with the demand that's being made of the people in, in the workforce and getting good people and losing them because of these difficulties. I feel like everyone's had a situation where they've worked with one of these people. Uh, maybe some of us have been in a situation where we've been one of those people, but like, it's one of those things. Uh, I mean, what I, I kind of take hearing from the story is that I don't think he was choosing to be difficult. I think that if he had a different a way to go about it, he did. And then you know, when you were able to kind of provide that to him, it was able to turn things around. He was no longer a difficult person to work with. Absolutely. And it starts with self-awareness. That's step one. And, and the truth is, it's actually really hard for super successful partners to get that kind of feedback because, especially if we're talking to a partner that has the rainmaker status and that has a lot of admiration from the team and a lot of respect because they are top billers, because they bring in most of the revenue. <laughs> it's very rare that an associate is going to turn around and actually give 
open feedback about the leadership style of the partner. What the associate is going to do instead is leave. Yeah. Right. And, and that's kind of one of the, you know, the double-edged sword of the hierarchical nature of how law firms operate and stuff too. It's like, you know, it's, it's very good to get that compliance from people, but you might not be operating with, you know, full information that you might ex- expect. Right. And like, I think it's also kind of interesting to look at things from like a filtering perspective. And we were talking a little bit on the pre-chat as far as like your um, certifications with neuro-linguistic programming. The chances are, I doubt much changed in terms of what the associates were bringing to the table, but everything changed around what he was like interpreting and that kind of stuff too. So it's like one of these things can literally change the lens with which you're viewing your workday, right? Well, absolutely. And there is a huge thing in NLP, which is that which you hold, you give. What I mean by that is the reason he generated the emotion fear around the team and that the associates were somewhat scared of him, if I may say, was because he actually was navigating a huge amount of fear. And not that he wasn't a courageous person, very courageous person, but the more you have status, the more you have power, the more you have to fear because the more you have to lose naturally. And there is a danger if you're not aware of the fact that a lot of your decisions are being driven by fear because it begs the question, are you motivating by the things that you want to run away from or the things that you're moving towards? So when I first asked him during our first call, what motivates you behind doing X, Y, Z, those specific things that he would do, the behavior or things he would say, we say, well, so that this and that doesn't happen. And I said, what motivates you behind doing this or not doing this? Well, so that I don't lose this business, so that I don't lose this. So it was a series of things that he didn't want to lose. And when you investigate that and you think about the fact that a lot of your motivation are things you don't want to lose, there is nothing wrong per se, but that's a fear-based mindset. Mm. Whereas what I worked with him towards is generating motivation towards. So we're going to do that so that we will get there. And it's a much more forecast-centric mindset, which actually fuels excitement, passion, and energy and means that you can alleviate a lot of fear in the process. And I can definitely see how that would connect to, you know, the example we were going over earlier with like waking up and feeling super burnt out on like the Saturday. Let me ask you this, as far as people, you might have a, a different selection, but like, how prevalent do you think it is naturally for people to have an away motivation versus a towards motivation with the type of attorneys that you're working with in general? Is it common to find people to have it all figured out or how rare is it to find that? What I would say is 99% of the attorneys that I work with don't even realize that there is such thing as a way or towards. It's quite subconscious. And of course, when you've said it out loud, it makes sense. It's very logical. Everybody understands the concept, but not very often do I come in a coaching session and do this analysis and someone tells me, yes, I'm mostly motivated by my away from and not very motivated by my tours. <laughs> that, does, yeah. that hasn't happened yet. If it does, I'll let you know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? <Gotcha>. Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't consciously realize that. But that's my point, is that once you've made that realization, that's it. That, you've got that knowledge. So, of course, you will still have a ways from. I mean, a very powerful away from in life is away from death. That keeps us mm. safe. So, away from are not bad, not at all. They keep us safe. But if most of the things that you do are 
spectated by away from, that could really means that you have a more pessimistic and cynical outlook on life. Yeah. It's got to be so hard to to get through these breakthroughs too. Now I can kind of understand why with this particular example we're going over, it was the wife who ended up recommending this. I'm also kind of curious, like as far as- Well, because when... he was going away from a divorce. Full circle, yeah. This is honestly how we began. Like, why are you on this call today? Because I don't want a divorce. Like, this is an ultimatum. You know, it was very much like, you're going to get coaching or else. So the mm. motivator once more was away from. By the end of the coaching program, the motivator was having the best marriage that I can have. So it was not not getting a divorce. It was getting the best marriage that I can have. And that in itself changes the marriage. Yeah. And I'm sure it changes the law firm too. I mean, like if you guys have partners and they have the situation where they're going through a tough situation, you know, you better believe that's going to hit the bottom line at some point too. Sure. And like, how often do you end up like, you know, getting people brought in by it's like another partner or an associate or something oh. like that? Like, how does that usually kind of play out when people are, are working with a high performance coach? That's a really good question. I get mandated coaching. So they're very specific. What is the difference between mandated coaching and sponsored coaching? It's quite an important difference. So typically when I work with law firms, they either go, right, so we're going to allocate um, buckets. So we're going to allocate 10, 20, 50 coaching sessions. And we're going to allocate this to our associate and partners population. So that's one category. And that's on a volunteer basis. So people who are interested at the end of a workshop or a keynote, they will volunteer and get coaching. That's one way of operating. Another way of operating is a lot more specific and they're called intervention. And that's a lot of what I do. They're very bespoke. They're very discreet. They're discreet because, of course, they are trickier to navigate, but they are mandated coaching. So I'll give you an example. A law firm comes to me and says a partner has been displaying leadership traits that are of concerns because we have noticed some team dynamics that were not optimal. We would love for you to work with that partner for three months. And what is not said in the text of that subtext is that the partner, of course, doesn't want to be coached. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then I have to be in this interesting position where I'm effectively coaching someone who didn't volunteer to get coached. And if I'm being honest with you, Jan, I love those situations because I love a tough crowd. You know, as an attorney <laughs> myself, I'm very uh, cynical by nature and skeptical by design. So yeah. I can understand someone who is both skeptical and cynical because I was born with those traits and I had to work my way towards softening those so that I could be a high performance coach. But I can really deeply relate with the reasons, reasons and reservation as to why someone may not want to be opening up to a coach. And I love seeing the shift because typically people who are most reluctant to coaching are the one that needed the most. Yeah. I was a prime candidate. I very much remember actually when a friend suggested many, many, many moons ago, way before I became a coach, the concept of coaching, which it was a foreign concept to me, I didn't think that was particularly attractive. It took me, you know, just thinking about it and reflecting on it over time to make that a new mission statement. So I understand people's reluctance initially. And I love working with mandated coaching because I think we get huge breakthroughs and it fosters enormous ROI on the law firm because not only do they get to keep the best 
partners, they get to build a really resilient team and see the law firm grow and see client grow and have more open communication. I lovingly uh, call my tough partners the tough superstars, you know, they're, they're, they're the superstars, but they're, they're tough. Yeah, and that's right. I mean, honestly, it's, it's got to be good to bring that litigation uh, background into play there. <laughs> you get a little bit of an adversarial thing at the start too. But of course, um, I think that's why I like it. Secretly, that's why I like it. <laughs> yeah. but, I mean, I think it's also like really important. I think it's like you got to have somebody like, again, I don't think anyone could be like coaching these people too. Because it's like, if it's not, you know, having the skills that you have to get through to someone like that, it's like, I can imagine a lot of these people like, well, what the hell does she know? She's not an attorney. She's not doing what I do. So I think it's a really, really unique position that you have. Totally. I, I would go as far as saying I'm not sure putting someone who isn't an attorney in that room would be a good idea. Yeah, <laughs> when I reflect back on some of the toughest conversations that I've had that I found extremely challenging, even as a, as a former litigator, I, I wonder how those would have played out if the person in front of those partners wasn't an attorney or a litigator themselves. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll say this too, just like, you know, change is tough and, but it's, it's something worth investing in too. Cause it's like, you know, we all have these options that we have in life and business where we can either try to change something or try to change somebody around us or, you know, initiate something to take a step where we can just walk away. And like, when you have the situation where other people are walking away from your firm, like the associates that you were talking about in like the earlier example, or, you know, you have a situation where you got a difficult partner and you might have to unwind something that you've spent years or decades building. Sometimes you're going to have to reckon about like what the benefits are and then what's worth investing. So I think it's just so powerful that, you know, there's options like this available that people can take advantage of. No, thank you. I appreciate your input. I really want it to be a mission statement to get coaching more normalized in the law firm world. I wish I had known about coaching earlier. I wish I was convinced about the benefit of coaching much earlier. I wish I had a coach back when I was a litigator. I sincerely mean that because I think my career could have taken a different trajectory. Although I am grateful that I didn't because otherwise I wouldn't have become a coach. So, you know, there is a, <laughs> there is a beauty everywhere and that's my silver lining. The fact that I didn't get coached means that I had to become the coach I wish I had. So yeah. there you go. Beautiful. All works out in the end. Yeah, this has been a fantastic discussion, Charlene. And as far as, um, you know, kind of next steps, if people are listening to this and they, you know, want to get into your world, what's the best uh, way to get into there? Thank you. The best way to get into my world would be to start off by visiting my website where you can find a lot of uh, resources. So it is www.charlenegisel.com. And if you mention that you are a listener of the Law Firm Growth Podcast, then you will receive a very exclusive gift. And I will make sure that I include that you will get an NLP confidence boosting recording that can help you for any challenge that you might be navigating. Okay, rock and roll. And um, I know we only got into this on a surface, guys, but for the listeners, we love NLP over here at the Law Firm Growth Podcast. I'd really recommend checking that out. We need another episode just to talk about NLP for law firms. <laughs> Honestly, maybe we should, Charlotte. We should. Uh, let me, okay, well, once we stop recording, maybe we'll pull some calories up, but that's a, that's a really good idea. But um, I mean, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really, really appreciate the insight. And um, you guys listening to this, I would go so far as to say the more uh, you are resisting this, the more it's probably worth looking into. So um, go ahead and do that. We'll have links, all that stuff in the show notes. And um, thanks again, Charlotte. I really, really appreciate the time. And for everybody else, I'll see you guys next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Eastern on the Law Firm Growth Podcast. 
Thank you for listening to the Law Firm Growth Podcast. For show notes, free resources, and more, head on over to casefuel.com slash podcast. Looking forward to catching up on the next episode.